there is no curriculum, right? So when I started, I was thinking, what am I supposed to do? And what the hell is a PhD for? How do I get a PhD? You know, I, I didn't even know what a PhD was. Welcome to the Super Podcast, designed for medical trainees looking to take time out of training for a clinical research fellowship in the UK. Each week, we'll bring you a 15-minute discussion with a leading expert in the UK medical research process, or from a successful research fellow sharing what they wish they'd known before they'd taken their time out. I'm your host, Nikhil Alawalia, and on behalf of the British Junior Cardiology Association and with support from the BHF Clinical Research Collaborative, we're proud to bring you this series. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. George Collins, a Wellcome Trust Clinical Research Training Fellow at the University College London. He discusses the transition from clinical cardiology to a bench-side research project in immunology, and also his pragmatic approach to taking time out of training and finding the right research team. I'm pleased to uh, introduce George Collins, who's a Wellcome Trust Fellow who's undertaking his PhD in immunology at the University College London. George is currently out of programme from his training post as a cardiology SPR at Barts Heart Centre uh, in London. Uh, in full disclosure, George and I are good friends and have worked together at Barts for several years now. And George, you're one of the first speakers I wanted to get on here, as I've learned a lot from you and your journey into academia, and I'm sure you've got lots of great advice to share. So uh, on behalf of all the listeners, welcome. Uh, how are you getting on? Oh, good to be here. Thanks, Nikhil. I really appreciate the invite. And um, it's, it's going to be really nice to share sort of some of my experience and I hope, um, hope your listeners enjoy it. Great. So uh, just start by bringing us up to speed with your journey up until uh, applying for your PhD. For sure. I mean, as, as you said, I'm a cardiologist by training. I did my ST3 and ST4. Um, I then came out of training after that um, to start my PhD at UCL. My my journey into research basically started, I'd say, during my application to um, ST3. So it was when I was reading uh, various trials for interview prep, basically. And, uh, you know, different different trials came up. You know, it's nice to quote certain trials that guide certain treatments in the interviews. Um, and basically one just stood out for me, which is a, a trial called Cantos, which was a trial of an anti-inflammatory in atherosclerosis. And it just stood out for me. Um, to be honest, atherosclerosis stood out as a disease that we haven't quite got to the bottom of. Um, and uh, anti-inflammatory stood out as a treatment that we don't really use at the moment, mainly, you know, lipid therapies and blood thinners, to be honest, and stents, obviously. And so that's what started it off, uh, sort of put a, um, a little nagging thing in my, my mind. And I just thought, well, immunology is an area of cardiology that isn't really thriving at the moment. We don't really use any dedicated anti-inflammatories and there's a sort of increasing awareness of um, immunology sort of based uh, etiologies to our some of our diseases heart failure atrial fibrillation atherosclerosis aortic stenosis and that sort of got my mind going and it was that that sort of got me interested in immunology and and so going down that rabbit hole I learned as much as I could about immunology about atherosclerosis and essentially just started the journey towards towards a PhD. That's sort of what got me thinking. And it was during ST3 where I was at Whips Cross Hospital sort of observing patients, thinking, you know, what disease am I interested in? What would keep me going during three years of hard basic science research? And it was these young atherosclerotic patients having heart attacks, um, 
whereby we know it's an, an inflammatory disease, but none of our therapies are dedicated immunotherapies. And that, that sort of got me thinking, but, you know, then what happened, it wasn't a straight line. You know, I don't want to paint it to be a straight line. Um, but yeah, sure, it's been a really exciting journey. I've never learned so much and um, I'm enjoying it a lot. So I just want to dig a bit deeper on this idea that you're a cardiology registrar who wants to do research in an area that's not typical for a, a cardiology trainee. So you have an idea, uh, and what, what was your next step in turning that into a PhD? For sure. Um, so regarding the sort of first half of that question, in terms of doing something a bit different, I think it's important just to sort of mention you know, PhD it has to be innovative, right? By definition, it's it's something new. It's exploring new knowledge, and innovation it can be found by burrowing down deeper and deeper into a, a single hole, a single question, right? So, your research is going to be about AF and heart failure, for example, and it's you can burrow deeper and deeper and deeper into that, right? Mm. And you'll find innovative things. Another way of sourcing innovation is actually where two sort of different fields intersect right so you can get innovation by two very different fields meeting in the middle uh, and that's something called the medici effect and basically i just thought well they are different and perhaps there's something in that um and that's that could be a way forward to finding innovation finding new knowledge regarding the second question about how you actually go forward and get uh, sort of onto a PhD program. Well, I think that is the first step is finding something you're interested in because you need something to get yourself out of bed for three or four years that motivates you. So it has to be something that you're fundamentally interested in. So the first step in that journey into the PhD is as early as you can thinking about what you're interested in and what research you're interested in doing. And so, you know, some of the sort of fundamental questions in that thought process are things like, do you want to do clinical or basic science research, for example? Um, what area of science do you want it to be in? Another fundamental question. Another one might be, yeah, like, where do you want to be? Um, what type of supervisor do you want? Um, and I thought about this and the way that you learn those answers to those questions is by thinking, but it's also by talking to like mentors, talking to people who've been through the process and also talking to different supervisors. So I visited the Crick Institute, UCL, Imperial, Oxford, Cambridge, you know, over the course of like a year or so. So did you just pick up the phone and or an email and send it to someone there and ask to visit them? Basically, yeah, like you might think that this is really, really common for people like us to randomly email professors saying, I'm interested in what you're doing. I want to come and say hello. But I don't think that is actually that common. If you do that, I think they'll be a receptive, you know, I think they'll be receptive. Um, you know, it's, it's, if you really want it, then you do something like that. And that shows the person, the supervisor, that you're, you really want it, right? If you're willing to go the extra mile, and these are all skills that are required to do a PhD, to show a supervisor that you can work, you know, you can communicate in an email, you can, you know, you work to drive all the way to Oxford for potentially no benefit at all. You, what you do is you 
you repeat that process. You meet as many people as possible and talk to as many people as possible. And in doing so, you, you're actually learning about what you want and what you do, ultimately what you get to do. And, and you also, obviously they all offer themselves as opportunity. And one of them might come through. And that's what happens is you do that. You repeat that cycle, talk to as many people as possible, think as much as possible. Uh, and eventually something happens that's good. That's my experience anyway. And I think that's that's sort of what happens. And so, so what was it about the centre at UCL that you thought this is the fit for me? Yeah, so I, I wouldn't say it was that. That wasn't my experience. I mean, it's brilliant and I'm really enjoying it and I'm learning a lot. But it's not like I got exactly what I wanted, right? I got almost exactly what I wanted. So what you do is, you talk to as many people as possible, learn as much as you can in the process. In the process, you're thinking about what you want, what type of research, where, who with, what sort of supervisor, et cetera, et cetera. And something comes through. And at the point of something coming through, some opportunity presenting itself, whether it's funding, whether it's a supervisor who already has funding, whether it's a, a fellowship you didn't even know existed, you know, whatever that opportunity is, at that point, you're ready to say yes or no. And you're not, I don't think you're going to get everything that you want, right? You might think you have this dream that you want this, you want this type of research with this, this approach to science, with this type of modality, with this type of supervisor in this area of science. You might think, oh yeah, I'm going to, I really want all of those and I'm going to get those. I don't know. My advice to most people, some people might get their dream, right? They get what they want. But my advice to, advice to most people would just be, Think about these opportunities when they arise. And look, my journey was this, right? I, as I said, I spoke to as many people as possible. I found this fellowship at UCL, which was called the Wellcome Trust Fellowship for Clinicians Program. And basically the Wellcome Trust was just this huge scientific research charity that give a large pot of money to individual institutions to divvy out to, to PhD students who are also doctors like me. And UCL basically do it in such a way where all you really need to apply is a four-pager document of why you deserve it. it you don't need a, a specific supervisor with a specific project plan, right? And that's just how UCL do it, but other universities do it differently, and the MRC do it differently, for example. Um, but but the, the way the Wellcome Trust Fellowship for Clinicians program at UCL works is you simply have a four pager and if they think you deserve an interview you get an interview uh, and then you have your interview and the job is to convince them that you deserve the money which is a privilege right so you have to convince them hard but you know if you then are awarded it then you choose a supervisor and then you choose a project mm -hmm. my point is that you do you know you have to think about really precisely what you want but i would have been a fool to turn down this opportunity right it wasn't 100% of my dreams it was like 95% of what i wanted but i do not regret it and i'm really enjoying it and i think that would be my advice at least i'm not you know i'm not regretting that decision and um but other people might think differently but this is how this particular program worked so how did you go about starting a phd in basic science I presume you had no lab skills when you started. So I had taken a big leap into basic science and into not only basic science, but also immunology, which is a completely separate field. 
so I basically didn't know very much about immunology, which meant I needed help. That meant I needed help. So much of my project design wasn't my idea, basically by necessity, because I didn't have any ideas because I didn't know any immunology. The point of the PhD was to learn immunology. So my project design, having, having been awarded the funding, was largely my supervisor's idea. Um, so my PhD is about actually about aging. So as you get older, your immune system changes, and it's about what effect those changes have on your risk of disease and how you might be able to reverse them. And the design of the project for me largely came from my supervisor. And I think that would be an important piece of advice for cardiologists is to have humility at this point, because the decision around what your project's going to be might not be your own. It might be a 5%, 10% your own. It might be 50% your own, okay? Your ideas are of course worthwhile, but I think one advice part, piece of advice would be to have humility and you know your supervisor will have their own ideas, they will have their own experience, they'll have their own you know plan for their own research going into the future and they will try and fit you into it. Okay, so it's not like you can just come along and say, oh, I want to do this and they drop everything and, you know, say, yeah, off you go. You know, I think unless you're doing something, some research that you know quite a bit about, maybe you already have lots of experience of analyzing big data or you've already had some experience in trials and you know a lot about it. Fine. If you've got experience, they might trust you to actually follow your own research questions and design your own project. But I think my experience has been because I needed a lot of help because I was quite far away from my field of expertise. I had to rely on my supervisor to help me through. I had to learn the tools of basic science. I had to learn all the different types of white blood cell, not just in the textbooks, but also in the literature. I had to learn how to keep them alive in a Petri dish. You know, I had to learn how to analyze them with various like um, reagents and uh, tools and techniques of science basic science that I'd, I'd never even heard of before. I needed guidance. Who taught you these new skills that you had to learn? Essentially in science, there's no structures, at least there's not, not as many, nowhere near as many structures as in clinical world, right? So in the clinical world, the structures I'm talking about are strict hierarchies, senior, middle grade, junior, right? That's just doctors. You've also got other roles, nurses, healthcare assistants, doctors. You've also got structures of education where you have a portfolio with a strict curriculum. None of these things are basically present in, in, in science. Each lab is run differently, okay? There's no set formula. Whereas you can go to a hospital and it looks pretty much the same as the last one, right? So in the lab, you've got your supervisor, but beyond that, the hierarchies and structures are very different between labs. Another, another way this manifests is there is no curriculum, right? So when I started, I was thinking, what am I supposed to do? And what the hell is a PhD for? How do I get a PhD? You know, I, I didn't even know what a PhD was. No, but there's no curriculum for a PhD, right? At the bottom line, it's write a thesis, which has maybe four, five, six chapters um, about, you know, that thick. Uh, and but that's three or four years from now, right? The real, the real money is how you get to that. Um, and yeah, we can certainly talk about how you get to that. Um, but I think, you know, the main thing for me is 
in the absence of those structures that I mentioned, it's to create your own, um, which might be one of the tests of doing a PhD is can you create structure for yourself where none exists? Um, and by that, I mean things like defining for yourself what your idea of progress actually is, doing what is required to actually progress on a like day-to-day -day level, week-by-week -week level, learning in order to gather data and then reflecting on how that went in order to, to progress and you, then your story to build up your thesis, your story incrementally writes itself. There's a lot of self-direction and autonomy, but with that comes a huge amount of responsibility. And how have you handled that in terms of t bearing the brunt and responsibility for whether this PhD works or not? Yeah, so I have had lots of guidance from my supervisor, basically. Um, I meet my supervisor Initially, it was once a week okay. um, because I literally needed to be told what experiments I needed to do because these were words I didn't even understand, let alone experiments I'd not done before, let alone areas of science I knew something about. I was so outside my comfort zone, I did need my hand holding. But the hand, you know, the hand you're being held with sort of loosens up and you, you develop more independence. And, and actually now there's a little bit less meetings with my supervisor. I, I have much more of an idea of which experiments I need to do, how I need to do them. So you do develop an independence, but a good supervisor, I think, will help you when you need it, but let you also in nurture independence. So a lot of your work is being done at the university. Can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with the university as a body? Yeah, I mean, it, it's probably no surprise to people that your involvement with the university is quite low. It's quite low, very low compared to undergrad. Um, there are supports networks out there and obviously any, everything in the, in the university is accessible to you, but a lot of it is self-directed. Um, your involvement with the university is, at the very bottom line is you have to, in your PhD, at some point you have what's called an upgrade, which is where you upgrade from I think it's a DPhil to a PhD mm -hmm. and that's a sort of important junction and at that upgrade that's you telling the university that basically you're on track to get a PhD you, your supervisor's happy with things and you you know you're on track and that involves writing a small thesis of what you've been doing so far having a presentation an upgrade presentation and also um, having a viva, like an interview with, with some supervisors. So midway through, you have an upgrade, which involves those three things. And then at the end, you obviously, of your PhD, you have your PhD thesis and your PhD viva. Those are the like really defined junctions within your, within your research. I'm sure there's a large number of trainees out there who are toying with the idea like you were of going into something new, going into basic science, going into you know, a concept uh, rather than a clinical project. So do you have any advice for anyone who perhaps hasn't started their academic journey yet uh, or something that you knew right at the start of yours? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I've spoken about a lot of it already um, in terms of 
having a think, talking to as many people as possible, bouncing ideas off people and talking to lots of supervisors and hoping an opportunity comes along. We've, we've spoken about that already. I think there is this important point, which is one of my regrets, is the point between being awarded a some kind of fellowship or offered a PhD program and starting, right? And this is the this is where you are as we speak, right? Mm. You're going to start in October, but you know you're going to start, right? Yeah. So my advice to you and the advice I wish I'd had given to me when I was in that stage is basically to do as much as you can to actually understand exactly what you're going to be doing. Um, and then to basically maximize your ability to actually do that um, and do that as soon as you can, i.e. get going and get going now because it will make your life a lot easier. What does that actually involve? Well, for me, it would have involved going to the lab, talking to my supervisor about exactly what I'm going to be doing, talking to his students about the sort of things they're doing, reading the thesis, the th theses of all of the past students of the lab, you know, reading the publications of the supervisor, reading around the topic, immunology for me, whatever it is for someone else, but also reading about science in general. Yeah, you can start planning experiments. You can even go in, right? And I know this is a bit of a stretch, but if you're working as a doctor, obviously this is hard, but you can go in at the weekend, you can go in in the evenings, you can zoom into lab meetings, you can go in uh, and start getting your hands stuck in, getting your hands dirty. Um, the reason that's far superior to anything you can do at home is because there's so much that people do that they don't articulate, right? You read a paper methods section, it's like not what you need to know to do the experiment like yeah. it's a it's an attempt but there's so much more detail required to practically do an experiment than is provided in a method section and that just highlights why it's so important to go in watch people doing experiments watch people doing lab presentations watch you know talk to your supervisor find out how the lab operates find out how it all works find out the structures, find out what's expected of you, find out what's your, what you're going to be doing. Um, get, get stuck in as early as possible because I, I had a, quite a standing start to my PhD and it's hard. Uh, it's over now, that quite hard initial period. But that would be my advice is to try and avoid a, a real standing start, a cliff edge. One way of facilitating that is to and this is something I just wish I was told, is you have, to, you have to get yourself in a place where you can focus at the beginning of your PhD. Doctors are like so used to having multiple things on, right? Multiple plates spinning. My advice to myself would be to drop all of the, the plates and start focusing on your PhD as soon as possible yeah. because there's so much to learn, there's so much to do, you you know, there's if you're also burdened with this over overspill from clinical work, those papers you haven't written up, those audits you haven't done, you know, I don't know, revalidation, whatever it is, you need to try and get that out of the way because you're going to need this period, however many months it is until you start your research, you're going to need this period 
when you're going to have to focus really hard on basically one thing. I think that's a great message. And thanks again, George, for giving up your time and sharing all these this advice. Yeah, no problem. It's been really fun chatting. And um, yeah, I guess if anyone wants to get in touch, that's absolutely fine. But, you know, I found the, the basic science has been really hard, but really rewarding. And if, if, if anyone has, has a nagging thought in their mind that it might be for them, I'd really recommend uh, giving it a go. Next time on the podcast. And the commonest reason for some provisional concern will be either around the information sheet or the consent form. In today's episode, I sit down with Professor Sir Terence Stevenson, the current chair of the Health Research Authority. We discuss what happens to a research proposal after you click submit on your IRAS form, and also the most common mistakes made by clinical researchers.